One of the most enjoyable things that I get to do in pastoral ministry is conduct premarital counseling of newly engaged couples. And then subsequently their weddings, which are also a joy. And over the last month or so, we've had the privilege of having a few weddings conducted here at our church building. I've had the privilege of doing the premarital counseling for both of those couples. One of the things that I always do in the course of premarital counseling, usually in the first session, is sit down and say, okay, so tell me, tell me about how you met. How'd you meet? Tell me a little bit about the development of your relationship. And, and also, tell me, tell me how he popped the question. Right? How did he propose? And he, hearing the arc of a couple's story not only provides insight on the, the depth of, of their growing love, but it, it also might shed light on what valleys they've been through or, or what potholes or valleys may yet lie before them. The, the history really preceding the proposal can, can be crucially important to helping a couple understand the commitment that they're about to enter into. What's the nature of that covenant that they're about to make in marriage? This examination of a, a couple's history previous to the proposal and then unpacking the future and that marriage covenant is something like what we're looking at this morning in Hosea chapter 2. In Hosea 2, we're giving, given something of a, a prehistory to the Lord's proposal of a new covenant of marriage with His people. And, and I've got to tell you this, the prehistory to the proposal is nothing like the stories I hear from young couples. You, you, you know what they're like, right? They're, they're all kind of lovey-dovey, right? And then there's this wonderful marriage proposal. Well, th the history of the Lord's relationship with the people of, the, uh, with the people of Israel is previous to the proposal at least, is, is um, to understate it, we'll, we'll say it's rocky. Um, the history preceding this proposal is filled with sin and unfaithfulness, which is really what makes the proposal itself surprising. But this is where we need to remember that God's relationship with the people of Israel is really but a microcosm of His relationship with all of humanity. From the beginning, God had purpose to unite himself to a people in love. But our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from that wonderful estate, that garden where they had that perfect relationship and, and bliss with God. They sinned against God. And then all mankind descending from them have really followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. And in that sense, it's not surprising that Israel's interactions with God were so marked and marred by sin and unfaithfulness. Yet, God did not give up. He, he would. He was determined to win for himself a bride. And as we examine Hosea chapter 2, we examine our own story, our own prehistory. It's filled with great sin. It's filled with God pleading, pleading, gentle pleading for us to turn away from our sin and to return to him. In fact, in fact our, our prehistory even if we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and even if we're following the Lord Jesus Christ, this prehistory that we see here in Hosea is still sometimes our present history. Sometimes we still sin against the Lord God and need to be called to repentance and to return to Him. And praise the Lord, God follows through with His covenant commitments. He follows through with His purposes, and He issues an amazing proposal. So this is the question that we're going to face this morning as we look at Hosea chapter 2. Will we repent of our wanderings? Will we repent of our wanderings 
and be reconciled and receive God's gracious offer of covenant love? That's the question that we all face together this morning. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, to open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2. We're going to begin at Hosea chapter 2, verse 2. There's a little bit of an unfortunate chapter break uh, with the first part of chapter 1. So we're looking at Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 23. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 571. Sorry, 751. 751. Um, Last week, we began our study of the prophet Hosea. We met him, we met his times, we met his uh, marriage, his circumstances, uh, and his children. So Hosea, he was a prophet in the latter half of the 8th century, just before the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. Hosea was warning the people of Israel that judgment was coming. He was warning them not to give themselves to these false idols. The people of Israel at this point in their history were prosperous, they were powerful, and they were mostly, for the most part, at peace. And yet, doom was coming, Hosea announced. Doom was coming because of their false worship. Now Hosea, God called him, he called him to go and marry Gomer, who we learned would be a woman, a wife of unfaithfulness. And in this, we, we begin to see that Hosea, he's not just going to explain God's message of judgment and mercy, but he's also going to exemplify it in his home life. Hosea is going to live the story of God's love for his people as he loves a wayward bride. Hosea's home life, it exemplified what God would do. And Hosea is even instructed to give names to his children. So he has three children we learn in chapter 1. Jezreel, which means to scatter or to sow. And what their names are communicating are God's judgment that's coming to the people of Israel. So God would scatter and sow the people of Israel in judgment. That was child number one, Jezreel. Uh, and then they would have a second child, Lorukhama, or it means no mercy. God is telling us through that name of that child that God would not show mercy to the northern kingdom of Israel. They would face the punishment of the Assyrian army. He would show mercy to the southern kingdom of Judah by preserving and protecting them. But the northern kingdom of Israel, whom Hosea was a prophet too, they would not be shown mercy. God would not protect them. The people of Israel would overrun them. So Jezreel, Lorukhama, and then we have Lo-Ami, uh, which means not my people, the most gut-wrenching name of all. And really in this child, the name of this child is showing uh, that God's going to formalize what is already functionally the case. The people of Israel have long left God. They've left Him. They've gone and they've worshipped the Baals. They've worshipped and served other gods. And so God is declaring what is actually the case. That you are not my people. You're going after other gods. You, you don't love me. And that's what you've done. You've gone and you've departed. Now the, the wonderful message of Hosea 1 doesn't end there. For God, he, he reverses those curses. He promises that he will send one head, which we later know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes and he regathers the scattered people of God. So Jezreel would be overturned. That he will be scattered and regathered under one head the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, the Lord Jesus would show mercy to those who don't deserve mercy. And those who are not God's people would be called God's people, children of the living God, the end of Hosea chapter 1 tells us. And they would say to the Lord that you are my God. They would say to one another, you have received mercy. And we know that this comes to find its fullest expression in Jesus Christ. Now, 
part of the reason that I've revisited all of that history in chapter 1 is because of how the book of Hosea works. The book of Hosea, chapter 1 especially, is programmatic for the rest of the prophet's message. And by that I mean what Hosea is going to do is he's going to take that very message in chapter 1 and he's going to expound it and explain it throughout the rest of his work. So like one would cut off a piece of a plant and then replant it to kind of expand the garden, that's what Hosea is going to do in chapter 2. We're going to revisit some of these themes and yet we're going to see them expanded and grown. So in the first part of Hosea chapter 2, in verses 2 through 13, we see Hosea recount the sin of Israel and the consequences that are coming to that sin. And we see God's plea for his people to return, to return to him and to repent of their sin. And then the second growth movement that happens, happens in the latter part of the chapter from verses 14 to 23, where God, he issues a proposal, a promise of love and marriage to his people, even in the face of of sin. So here's the outline for the rest of the sermon. We're going to look at Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 to 23 in two movements. God's plea, which is for his people to repent, and God's promise or his proposal, which is to be united to him in love. So those, those are the points that are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. I want to begin with our, our first point, with God's plea, his plea for his people to return. Here's, here's the message in a single sentence of the chapter as a whole. Return and be reconciled to God. That's the simple message of Hosea chapter 2. And in this first part, we're looking at God's call to return. And, and as we begin to, to look at this, verses 2 through 13, I want to give you a job. Right? As I read this passage, I want you to watch for or listen for the words, I will. I will. These words, I will, appear actually no less than 26 times in, in this text. And they turn up at least 12 times in the verses that we're about to read. Sometimes Yahweh is saying, I will do this. Or and sometimes Israel is saying these words. But in both cases, they're signaling important actions and attitudes. So here we go. Let's read Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 through 13. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, she will go after my lovers. she, she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her up, hedge her way up with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall, be, she shall pursue her lovers, but shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which she used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness, 
Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Well, in these verses, Israel's uh, wayward ways and the coming consequences are described. And there's, a, there's an oscillation back and forth between what Israel has done or will do and what God will do. And yet, notice, notice where these verses begin. They begin there in verse 2 with a plea. Plead with your mother, Hosea says. You see what he's doing? He's, he's calling upon the children to go and speak to their mother. So broken and devastated is this relationship between God and His people that He calls upon the children to go and speak and address the mother. And not just once, but twice. And they plead with her to put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Imagine children being called upon to intervene in a marriage so broken and so devastated, a relationship like that. Now, one of the things that happens here in this passage is that later on we're told that the children will face punishment too. So we need to understand what's going on between the the mother and the, the children metaphor. We've got to recognize that this metaphor that Hosea is working out Right? This metaphor is meant to serve the message. So sometimes the, the children face the same punishment as the mother. And that's because in some ways they're really just one and the same. I think it's best for us to think of this mother imagery as the corporate nation and the people of Israel as a whole. And the children as those individual Israelites. And neither the nation nor the individual Israelites will escape the judgment that's coming. Because they've all given themselves to sins in varying ways. As a nation, they've given themselves to loyalties to other nations. But as individuals, they've also worshipped at individual shrines of the Baals and the false gods. We've got to remember that what we're reading here is prophetic poetry. We've got to recognize that this metaphor is meant to serve the message. And, And here's the message, right? The message is really simple. Here's the plea. It's return. It's come back to the Lord. It's, it's not a half-hearted plea, it's an, it's an earnest plea. That's why it's issued twice. And actually this, this word plea, depending on the context, sometimes in the Hebrew language, it can be translated strive or contend or argue. And some have suggested that we're looking at legal language here. And that may very well be the case, but at bottom the truth is this. The Lord, He wants His people back. He wants them back, but they keep wandering away. And we need to recognize here that the the, the revolting language there at the end of verse 2, right? It, it disgusts us at a certain level. And it's appropriate for it to, that to do that in our hearts, in our, in our minds, because it trains us to think about sin. This is how we should think about sin. We should have a, a revulsion towards sin. We should find it revolting. And yet too often we find it familiar. But this needs to train us to have a distaste for sin. Verse 3, it tells us that if Israel will not return to her husband, then, the return, then, then her husband will return her to the state of her birth. Remember the people of Israel, they were, they were birthed into the wilderness out of Egypt. They were alone. They were open to various dangers of food and lack of water. They were open to the dangers of, of 
marauding armies as well. It was a, an unsafe place for the people of Israel to be. And yet the Lord was there with her, protecting her. But now, since she has forsaken the Lord in His love, the Lord will send her back to that dangerous and vulnerable state. That's the fulcrum on which the word lest is turning. Every newborn babe is helpless and in need of loving protection and provision. And Israel, they were protected and provided for at their birth as a nation. They are protected by God. And if she will not return to the Lord, then she'll be returned to her helpless state. And the first I will, if you notice it, it comes up there in verse 4. Upon her children, I will have no mercy. Remember, since he's not showing mercy, allowing judgment to come to to mother, it's also coming to the children as well. So we're seeing this overlap of the children and the mother. It's sobering to think that God, in His loving kindness, was Israel's help, His source, her source of food, her source of provision in the wilderness. He was all that she needed. And yet, when the people of Israel, when they were w- making their way into the promised land, Moses preached a, a very long sermon that we know is the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he told the people of Israel not to forget the Lord, but to remember that He was the one who was giving them these provisions as they were entering the land. They should be careful not to forget the Lord. They should be careful not to go after other gods, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against them. And yet consider Israel's first I will in the second half of verse 5 there. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Israel's going after other lovers. Plural. This is a a reference to her pursuit of the Baals. And think about that for a moment. The gods aren't coming after Israel. She is pursuing them. Now, Normally, a woman of harlotry waits to be pursued and paid. But Israel, her heart is so corrupted and so bent toward unfaithfulness that she's going and seeking it out. She's going and seeking other lovers, lovers other than Yahweh. And it's important for us to kind of recognize the kinds of gods that are in view here, these Baals. There was more than one Baal out there. They were certainly geographically scattered all across the region. But various Baals would would give and deliver various things. So there was a a, a Baal who was a storm god who would bring the rain. And the hope, right, was that crops would grow. There was a, a... Baal who was uh, a sea god and could bring chaos. You don't want that, you want peace. So you'd seek to appease these various kinds of Baals. But at the bottom, what Israel wanted, they wanted one thing from Baal, or the various Baals. They wanted a land of prosperity, a land of peace and progeny. And as such, the Baals were looked to for fertility, for the land, and for the womb. In short, Baal was looked to for life. But Yahweh was the one, the one true God who gave life. And Israel, Israel should have known that. To go and worship these Baals, the people of Israel had to have favor from the peoples who housed these idols. They had to be able to to blend in with the world, look like the world, talk like the world, walk in step with the world in order to be accepted and worship with the world. And this is a perennial danger for God's people. God's people must be distinct from the world. We do not want to needlessly offend the world. 
But the Bible teaches us that if we are following in the way of Christ, then we will actually be the aroma of death to those who are perishing. The aroma of life to those who are being saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Are our priorities and passions, are they different than our neighbors, our co-workers? Are our personal pursuits those aimed at seeking first Christ's kingdom? Or building our own little kingdoms here in northern Virginia? Not only does Israel wrongly ascribe her life and wealth to the Baals, to the gods of the surrounding nations, but she's also clearly absorbed. Did you, did you see that at the, the my, 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 the end there of verse 5? My bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Right? Materialism has drawn her in and turned her inward. Israel loved the Baals and the false gods of the surrounding nations, but what she really loved was that she th- thought these idols would give her. Too often we love the world, but what we really love is the comfort and ease and favor that we think the world will give us. Idolatry isn't often about the idols per se. It's often actually about us and what we're seeking and pursuing and hoping to use them to get out of them. Verses 6 and 7, they bring out a few more I wills. The Lord tells us that He will place obstacles in Israel's path as she seeks to pursue other lovers. Do you see that? The Lord promises to put up thorn hedges and walls so that His wife cannot find her way to false gods and false hopes. Is it not kind of the Lord to seek to frustrate Israel's pursuit of these false gods? The Lord seeks to restrain Israel's recklessness. Is this not a mercy of God? Is He he doing that with any of us here this morning? Is the Lord throwing up any thorn hedges in your way? Any difficulties you feel like, I cannot surmount that or pass that or press through that? Is He putting something mercifully, lovingly in your way to restrain your sin? To prick you with a thorn? And to cause you to think, is this actually something I should perhaps turn away from and turn to God. Consider that those obstacles that are thrown in your path might be divine obstacles and a loving kindness from God to you. James Smith once wrote, Beloved, when you find thorns in your path, just stop and ask, am I in the right road? Is this the true pilgrim's path? Does this way lead to my father's house? For the thorns are intended to awaken inquiry, produce reflection, and bring to repentance. Could economic ruin or decline be a loving hedge from God? Could illness or physical frailty be a loving wall from God? Could dashed hopes or relational difficulties be a loving hedge? Are we in the right road? Do we need to repent and return? Is there some sin we're holding on to that the Lord in His merciful obstruction is calling us to let go of and to return to Him? Well, according to verse 7, Israel will return to the Lord. You see that there? It's God's kindness that's meant to lead to repentance. But we might be forgiven if we're a bit skeptical of this return for Israel. Whether or not this is really genuine repentance. After all, this return, it appears to be based on comfort rather than a covenant commitment, doesn't it? You see, Israel says to herself, 
I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. Is our return to God ever based upon comfort? That, the, the past was much more comfortable than the present. The idea, I'm not really getting what I wanted out of this pursuit, so I'm just going to leave it aside for now. I'm going to go back to God. Similarly, is our, is our worship of God ever based upon the assumption that, that He's better than what the world has to offer like right now? Well, there's, a, there's no soccer game this morning, so we'll go to church. No f- football game. Let's go to church. There's no, there's no work crowding my schedule, so let's go to church. I mean, going to church is better than nothing. Let us be careful not to let the worship of the living God take second place. As uh, That's a better thing to do right now, I guess, and I don't have something else to do. Watch what crowds your, your Lord's day. It may be an indication of where your heart is drawn, to the things of this world or to the next. According to verse 8, Yahweh, He had so lavishly provided for Israel, and yet she spent His gifts on other gods. Do we ever do that? Think about the, the talents that the Lord has given to you, the treasure that the Lord has entrusted to you, the responsibilities and callings the Lord has placed in your hand. Do you ever use those good gifts from the Lord to spend on yourself or on Him? The people of Israel, they were using God's generous, gracious gifts to spend it on their flesh, to spend it on the bales. Israel should have known that it was the Lord who was making every necessary provision for her flourishing. In fact, she did know it. She was just willfully blind to it. She was suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Given that Israel not only failed to appreciate God's gifts, but positively abused them and even attributed them to false gods, then the Lord, in His love, He says there in verse 9, He's going to take back these gifts The Lord would not only take back His good gifts, but He would take away those things which covered Israel and kept her from shame. You see that in verse 10? Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Her land would be ransacked. That's what the prophet Hosea is getting at. It would be exposed for all to see. But is there some lewdness that we're hiding? Some lewdness that we're afraid of? for the world to see that God in His mercy might actually uncover in the sight even of others so that we might be awakened, so that we might be awakened and called to repentance. Might it be part of His plea for us? Could the Lord do that to us as well? What secret idols and loves might we be ashamed to have others discover? Let us not fool ourselves. The Lord sees them. And in His wisdom, He may choose to uncover them so that we might be led to repentance. And another sober punishment is found there in verse 11. Consider verse 11 again. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Here, the Lord is promising to remove Israel's joy. And notice that her joy is directly connected to her religious assemblies to her gatherings, her feasts, and her festivals of worship. But don't miss this point. Our joy, in part, is connected to the corporate worship of God. But these assemblies, do you see here? They do not belong to the Lord. You know, usually in the prophets, we read phrases like this. My feasts, my new moons, my Sabbaths, uh, my, uh, my, my appointed feasts. We hear those terms especially in Isaiah and Ezekiel. 
These events originally belonged to the Lord. He possessed them. He claimed them as his own. Just like our Lord's Day, right, belongs to the Lord Jesus. Our Sunday belongs to Jesus. But here, these events belong squarely to Israel, right? It's not my Sabbaths. It's not my feasts. It's her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Israel might have gone to worship Yahweh, but the worship of the Baals was in her hearts, in her heart. And this sets me to wonder if in these past few months, could the Lord have hedged us in by thorns? Could he have removed our gatherings and postponed our joy because we have divided hearts toward him? Have we returned to him in corporate worship because it was better for us than now? Are there other ways in which our worship of God has been corrupted by other loves, crowded by other loves, made compatible or contemptible, really, in the sight of God by other loves? We ought to at least consider the possibility. Once again, in verse 12, we find Israel attributing the Lord's rich gifts to others. Israel has believed the lie that the fertility gods of the Canaanites, the Baals, have made her land flow with riches. Again, note the plural. It's not as if Israel's been giving herself to one Baal, but to many Baals. To many Baals. And the vines and the fig trees here, they're images of Israel's great wealth. Great wealth given by God. But the Lord promises to lay waste to them. It's staggering to think, is it not, that the Lord would wipe out His people's wealth to make them aware of their sin, to wake them up and to lead them to repentance. And yet, this is what is necessary. The people of Israel have been feasting with the Baals when they should have been feasting only and, only, only and always with Yahweh. They should have been giving themselves to knowing God, but they gave themselves to being known by the Baals. They have forgotten the Lord. Israel has been falling all over herself to get the attention of the Baals. While Yahweh, the eager, earnest, and ever-enduring husband, was standing by, showering his bride with love, only to be forgotten and forsaken. These verses, they, they tell us not only of the Lord's anger, his right, just, good anger, but they also tell us of the Lord's anguish, right? I will punish her, anger, righteous anger, but anguish, she forgot me. What about us? Have there been times when we've forgotten the Lord? Have we ever been so absorbed with the loves of the world that we've forgotten the one who made us? Have we forgotten who it is who loves us and takes care of us? Yahweh has pled with Israel to repent and return. He has even delivered a, a divine blockade, right, to restrain her wandering. He has taken away such his, his rich gifts so that she will remember him as her source of satisfaction. God has exposed her shame so that she might come to him for covering and comfort. He has brought an end to her feasts and festivals so that she might recall that he is the joy of her salvation from Egypt. God will make the land barren. It's almost as if he will bring the land to the point of chaos and uncreation so that he might, his people might come to him for blessing and recreation or new creation. And Yahweh, he will chastise his bride so that she might no longer forget that he is her patient, loving, and faithful husband. What, as we often sing here, what patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father 
so tender is calling us home. Brothers and sisters, he's pleading with us now to come to him, to return. Yahweh has pled with his wife to repent and return to him. And now, in verses 14 to 23, the Lord God announces his pursuit of his wayward wife. God tells us that he will reignite Israel's love for him. That he will make a proposal, an offer of love, a new covenant of marriage. So let's turn now and consider our second point, God's God's proposal, God's promise. And here's the proposal. It's reconciliation. His his promise is that he will reconcile his people to himself. Follow along as I I read uh, verses 14 to 23. And keep your eyes out for those I wills yet again. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards. And make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Well, These verses, verses 14 to 23, they expand and expound upon the promise that was delivered at the end of chapter 1. Here, God not only promises that reconciliation will take place, but that he will pursue his people. Therefore, of verse 14, is altogether surprising. Typically, right, when we read and study our Bibles, whenever we see a therefore in the text of Scripture, we say, well, what is that therefore, therefore? We're asking a question, what's its function? And typically, a therefore functions in this way, right? What I've just read, therefore, in light of what I've just read, therefore, I will do this or that. Or what I've just read, in light of this, therefore, God will do this or that. Now think about what we've just read. Right? Here's what's going on with the therefore of verse 14. Because my people, because they've been wayward, because they've been unfaithful, because they've been an adulteress, therefore I will allure her. I will woo her. I will win her. I will pursue her. Don't you, don't you love this I will from God? I will allure her. Is this not amazing? God has every right to depart from his people. They've spurned him. They've rejected him as a lover. But what does he promise to do instead? He promises to win her heart and to reconcile the relationship. And this is honestly what some husbands in our congregation and some husbands elsewhere need to do. They need to allure their wives. 
Brothers, we need to give ourselves to winning the hearts of our wives. Loving them. Being present with them. Instead of devoting ourselves at the altar of work. We need to change diapers. And take out laundry. And stand in the kitchen. And listen. And love. We need to be present and faithful and read poetry and sing and bring flowers. Myself included. We need to allure our wives. But you might say to me, but you don't understand how cold she is. How angry she can get. How unkind she can be. How standoffish she can be. You, you don't understand. And that's what I want to say to you. You don't understand the therefore of verse 14. God has just said Israel has been wayward in all of these ways. And therefore I will love her and pursue her. Because that's how God comes after us. Because we've been walking away from him. And yet he comes to us and pursues us. You don't understand God's love for us. You don't understand what Jesus has done. When Jesus came into the world, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And he didn't say, well, that's that. I'm going to go back up to heaven now. He lived and loved and he spoke tenderly to his people. He pursued them. He told them that he would love them and he did it even unto death. He said, I will love my people even if it's the death of me. And that's precisely what he has done. Brothers, this is how we have to love because this is how we have been loved by God. This is how the Lord Jesus has pursued us. So brothers, allure your wives, woo them and win them. And single men, if I may have a word for, with you, just a moment. Uh, you need to learn this from Hosea. The heart of a woman must be one. That means that some of you need to soften. You need to intentionally work at softening your sharp edges. Uh, you need to learn the way of gentleness. You need to learn the art of alluring. Your good looks will not win you the heart of a godly woman. Because she will see right through what's passing. She'll see right through what's passing. Because if she's godly, she's looking for a love that's permanent. A humility that's constantly present and a hope that will not fail. So single brothers, if you, if you want to get married, it's time to get discipled by some godly men who are crafty in the art of alluring. Notice the place where God purposes to allure his people. It's there in the wilderness. Now perhaps this is a reference to the early days of Yahweh's relationship with Israel. After he brought her out of the land of Egypt, those days when their love was fresh and new. There might be some of that in mind here. Most likely, however, I think that Yahweh is promising a new exodus because the, the features of this text point to a, a new covenant. We're going to unpack that here in a minute. But he will start again with his people, his bride. This will be a, a new engagement, a new covenant. After all, this is where the Lord Jesus began his ministry, right? After passing through the waters of baptism, Jesus entered into the wilderness and there he began to woo God's people by winning for them righteousness as he lived a life of obedience unto God the Father for us and for our salvation. In the wilderness, God will speak tenderly to his people. Yahweh has been tough. He's, he's chastised Israel for her sin. He's, he's corrected her. But now he takes the tack of tenderness. In the words of Otis Redding, try a little tenderness. In fact, 
These words speak tenderly to her, even have the semantic range of singing. This could very well be translated, I will sing to her. And Yahweh, he goes further still. There in verse 15, we find another I will, another promise. He's taken her vineyards. He said that in verse 12. But now he will give her her vineyards. He's gracious and generous with his bride. He lavishes gifts upon them. He even promises to take or to make the valley of a core a door of hope. Now, what, what can that mean? What's going on here? Well, to remember, uh, to understand what's going on, we need to kind of go back to Joshua chapter 7, where the valley of a core really first crops up. The full story is there. When Israel was beginning her conquest into the promised land, right, under the leadership of Joshua, a man by the name of Achan took idols and he hid them in his tent because really they were the idols of his heart. That's what he really wanted. And he hid them there. And thus he and his family were executed for their idolatry. It was a place in that valley. That was a place of of judgment where God punished idolatry. But where God punishes idolatry will be the point at which he turns and offers mercy. And where does God punish our idolatry? But in Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross and in Jesus Christ and in his punishment comes our mercy and our hope. God will take that place of punishment and he will turn it into a place of hope. What our God is promising to do is to exchange his people's trouble. That's what the word accord means. And to draw them into trust. The place where Israel had formerly loved idols will be the place where she leaves them behind and walks with her God. That's what verses 16 and 17 are exemplifying as the names of the former lovers, right? They're gone. And the loving call to her true husband is given. Where she once forgot Yahweh, she now forgets the Baals. She remembers their names no more. Yahweh has won her heart. What was it the Apostle John said at the end of one of his letters? He said, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's what God has called us to, to leave those idols behind and to come to Him and to place our hope and faith and trust in Jesus. Yahweh, He will allure His people. He will transform their trouble. He will win their hearts so that His name is on their lips and it's spoken in love. And He will make, He will cut, He will establish a covenant with them. You see that there in verse 18. Now, the features of this covenant, they're peculiar. First and foremost, it's Yahweh who's establishing this covenant. It's the work that He does. His people will be the chief beneficiaries of this covenant. But it's a covenant made by Yahweh. And it's a peculiar covenant, and that involves all of creation. For the language of verse 18, it harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where He said that man would have dominion over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's a peculiar covenant because war is abolished and perfect rest reigns. It's a peculiar covenant because it's an everlasting marriage. For the Lord promises that He will betroth Himself to His people forever. He will not let His people be lost. His promises, as we sang, they shall last And in fact, the words, my husband, there in verse 16, hearken back to the marriage covenant that was uttered by Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. There's semantic overlap with verse 16 
and that passage in Genesis chapter 2. This is a peculiar covenant because Yahweh will throw this people to himself in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, mercy, and in faithfulness. Verses 19 and 20. These have not been the hallmarks of Israel's love for God, as we've learned from Hosea. But they will be going forward when this covenant is established. They will be going forward because Yahweh himself will secure them. And he will give Israel a new heart for these characteristics. It's a peculiar covenant because God's people will know the Lord. This will be a reversal of Israel's forgetting the Lord. Remember that from, from verse, uh, or is it verse 13? She forgot me, declares the Lord. It's a reversal. What is more, this knowing in the scriptures often has connotations of intimacy. It doesn't necessarily have to refer to sexual intimacy. Rather, it can simply be that of a deeply intimate and personal relationship. So this will be a relationship in which God's people know their God. In fact, this very language of knowing is the language that Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of uh, when he talked about the Lord establishing a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Listen to Jeremiah 31 verses uh, 31 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, catch this, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Those who make up this new covenant, those who make up this bride, will not be a mixture of those who know the Lord and those who don't know the Lord, but rather God's people will all know the Lord. And that is what we're looking at here. We're not looking at the restoration of an old covenant. We're looking at the establishment of a new covenant. For it's the only covenant that can bring full reconciliation with God and full reconciliation with the cosmos. This covenant is what Jesus came to secure in His life death and resurrection. Jesus is the one who secured righteousness for God's people through his obedience. And he credits that to their account as they put their faith in him. Jesus is the one who satisfied the demands of God's justice against our sin through our wages of sin being paid to him in his death on the cross. Jesus is the one who showed steadfast love for in the words of John chapter 13 verse 1, he loved us to the end. Jesus is the one who is able to show us mercy and compassion in our weakness and sin. Because three days after his death, God raised him from the dead, vindicating him from the grave. Having conquered the grave, he delivers us from eternal death. And Jesus is the one who shows us constant faithfulness. He has promised that he will not leave us or forsake us. He has promised us that none of his people can be snatched from his hand. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, Mercy and faithfulness are attributes which marked our Lord Jesus. And we receive these benefits through our union and covenant with Him. And these are also attributes which by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit increasingly manifests in our lives by His power as He imparts Christ to us. This covenant that we're reading about here in Hosea chapter 2 is what Jesus came to secure 
through his life, death, and resurrection. And it is what he will come again to consummate. We know that from Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 21, that on the last day, the people of God are prepared as a bride, dressed and adorned for her husband. And in his vision, the Apostle John, he records a loud voice from the throne saying this in Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And did you notice where Hosea's reflections on this covenant conclude there at the end of chapter 2? They conclude with God dwelling with his people as their God. Look at verses 21 to 23. There is perfect peace between the heavens, the earth, God, and man. The heaven shall send down rain. That's what verse 21 is getting at. And the earth shall send up fruitfulness, grain, wine, and oil. Verse 22. It's a glorious picture because it's a glorious promise. And because it's a glorious future that is coming to God's people. Notice the end of verse 22. The heavens and the earth, they answer to Jezreel. Creation no longer groans because mankind subjected it to futility but instead gives up its bounty to God's people who have been sown in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a picture of reconciliation, cosmic reconciliation, like we see at the end of Revelation. Now Jezreel, just meditating on that some more, you'll recall, was a name describing the punishment that God's people would face. They would be scattered and sown, but now God turns that burden, that punishment and burden into a blessing. God God's redeemed and glorified people will be sown as they will be harvested in great number. They'll be harvested among the nations. Those who should not have mercy, have received mercy. And they will serve the Lord God all over the new heavens and the new earth. Those who were not God's people, but, but they have now been claimed and purchased by Christ, are now God's people. We've moved from uncreation and that barren land to new creation and fruitfulness. And at the end of the day, we must remember that this transforming work is accomplished by God and God alone. Especially in the second half of chapter 2, there are loads of I wills from Yahweh. He makes promise after promise. I will do this. I will do that. He holds out the promises of forgiveness and reconciliation to us. And the question is, will we answer His gracious call to be united to Him? Will we answer His proposal? Will we say, I do? Will we say, I will marry you in faith? Will we become part of the bride of Christ that Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 5? Will we call Him our husband in the words of verse 16? Will we be part of that bride that's pictured in Revelation 19 and 21? Will we say the final words of this chapter? Do you see the the final words of Hosea chapter 2? Will we say, you are my God. That is the vow that the people of God are themselves to make. Will you say, you are my God. Will you make that vow and be betrothed to God? Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you receive God's offer of forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Will you repent and turn from your wicked ways, ways in which, sadly, we have all walked in. Will you see the devastation and the punishment that's coming to sin? And it's coming on an eternal scale. Will you see this? And will you flee from that wrath to come and find 
refuge in God and in His Son, Lord Jesus Christ? Will you be warned of the judgment due to your sin? And will you find refuge in Christ who offers to us the forgiveness of sins and hope, the hope of reconciliation and everlasting life with Him in the new heavens and the new earth? The question is, will you turn to the Lord Jesus? Will you put your faith in the Son of God who secured the righteousness that you have not lived? Who has done the justice that you have not done? Who has shown steadfast love when your love has been fickle? Who has been merciful when you have been unmerciful? And who has been faithful when you failed to keep your promises? Will you trust in the Lord Jesus who has secured these things for sinners like us through His life, death, and resurrection? Will you receive His overtures of love? Will you receive that therefore of verse 14? Looking back on all your history of love, the Lord God says to you, I see all that. And yet, I will allure you. I will pursue you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you receive this offer from the God of grace and mercy? This is His proposal to you. So turn from your sins and come to Him in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Our history, all of our history, with the loving God of the universe has been a bit tumultuous. But praise the Lord that He has been constantly gracious. He has, it's always been His goal to win us and woo us through His beloved Son. And concerning this, Jonathan Edwards once wrote, the creation of the world seems to have been, especially for this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all the immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart and that in this way God might be glorified. This is what our God has promised to do in Hosea chapter 2. And he who has promised is faithful. Even this meal that we're about to take together is a sign, it's a type, it's a shadow of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's be amazed that our God would be so patient with us in our wandering. And let's rejoice that the Lord has so gloriously pursued us in Jesus Christ. And let's answer His call and say, You are my God.